Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. And then... And then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls. And it was like, you don't have to give us a ride. You can't fill us no. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. Thoughts were all alone in the And we're here yet again, like it's paranormal. No one else is here? Yeah. Who else is here? Is there somebody else in here? Oh, hey, Luke. Oh, hey, dude. Oh, What's up, man. Buddy? <laughs> he just kind of appeared. Like, you just, like, teleported from somewhere. I teleported it, from a few blocks down the street. It's a, it's a <laughs> mythical creature powers that you have. <laughs> There's a puff of smoke and then, like, a loud guitar, like, chord. And then... <laughs> well how the hell you been luke good dude I, I heard your ratings started to drop so i was just like dude i gotta yeah, do something about yeah yeah well <laughs> they love you so much i mean you get you get more facebook requests than uh than we do so well i, I also heard that we're talking about jfk and i'm just fascinated in that subject are you, know? you? so are I, you really <laughs> fascinated in it I couldn't. After that four-hour movie you showed me, I'm a friggin' professional. <laughs> <laughs> That's. Do you need a fidget spinner, Luke? Yeah, yeah, I can. Use do one. we need to get you one of those little fidget spinners? Yeah, as long and, as long as it's badass, like 
metal or something. You know? I have seen those everywhere I've gone so much lately that the other day I was at Kroger and I saw one and I was like, like I had this urge to buy it. And, it, and then I realized what I was doing and like it just it blew my mind that like I like it's one of those you know where where something is thrown at you so much or like a song is played so often that suddenly like, mm-hmm. like oh crap I like it now. <laughs> well, so let me ask you: Do you think I need one? Because you know I always sit here and like yep. play with things in my hands while we're on the, well while we're doing the the podcast. Like right now, I got a pin in my hand. No, but I was telling somebody. Um, while we were talking about the fidget spinners, that I gave you a stuffed animal to play with. Yes. For the same reason. Yes. So maybe I do need one of those maybe little fidget. You're the fid- one that needs them. Maybe I need one of those little fidget spinners. <laughs> yeah, so you, you need the fidget cube, the one that's actually practical to use, not just a stupid skateboard bearing that spins in a circle. Oh, there's, there's a fidget cube? Yeah. It, How it, is it practical? Because the fidget cube was actually made for that purpose while the fidget spinners are just made just to be a stupid like 12 year old collectible toy ah yeah the the fidget cube like each side of the cube has different things to fidget with like they have like a little eq selector sort of deal and then another side has like some round knobs and then another side Uh has switches yeah Uh that's made specifically for that purpose kids with add adhd and then I the, see. Yeah. I see. And the fidget spinner is just a fad thing. Well, you know, we're trying an experiment tonight. You're in a different chair. Yeah. Because our theory is, is that when you're on the couch, you fall asleep. No, that's no theory. That's certainty. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. There's been many pictures I've posted up on the face on, on Facebook's. Of uh, Luke uh, taking a nap. It's nappy time, whatever. It's time for conspiracy or <laughs> Well, you know, I, I really miss recess, like, from grade school. Like, why can't our jobs have recess? <laughs> you know? Or nap time. Recess and nap time. Nap time. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even get a break at my job. Yeah, man. We should all go back to that. Like, the nap time, play the little tape, and, and like, really soothing voices. Yeah. I'm also a fan of siestas. Siestas? Yeah, there you go. Well, I mean, most of the world does that, right? You go home in the middle of the afternoon and sleep. Yeah, and I, I'd, be, I'd be way more productive if I only worked in four-hour chunks. Yeah, but this is America, you know. We're taking over the world because we don't we don't have siestas in the middle of the day. You go and work, you need to work hard. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of experiments, like the little segue there. That's good. What do you know? Any of you guys about the Philadelphia experiment? <clears throat> okay, here's what I know. Uh, it involves a Navy ship. It involves experiments, and um, I think I believe it was part of a program that evolved into the people that built the atomic bomb. Um, or there was some ties between the two. Programs. That might be a claim, yeah. Um, and that it involves possible teleportation and/or time travel. Yes. That's pretty much the extent of my knowledge. Yes. Apparently, this was something that happened, people say that happened in 1943, 43 or 44. And it was an experiment to make a ship invisible. Now, the claim is, is that they didn't just make the ship invisible. They teleported it across space and time. And... The story goes is that they turned whatever on 
this this uh, technology. They turned it on to make the ship invisible, and it teleported first to Norfolk, Virginia. This is the USS Eldridge was the name of the ship. And it teleported to New Norfolk, Virginia for, for like two minutes and then teleport, teleported back to the Philadelphia shipyards. And when they got on the ship, they said that the guys were like fused into the ship. Yeah, that's right. I, I, you know, I couldn't remember if that was something that was just like a dramatized, like a movie or something, or if right. that was actually part of the original story. Right. Now, there was a book that came out in the late 70s by Charles Burlitz, and we kind of mentioned him in our last Patreon episode with Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern, because he also wrote a book in the late 70s about the um, Roswell incident, Mm. and it was one of the first books to be written about it. I think actually the first book to be written about it. But he also did another book about the Bermuda Triangle and then also a book about the Philadelphia Experiment. And he kind of got into the popular consciousness through that book. And then there was a movie that came out in 1983. Right. I remember the movie. Called The Philadelphia Experiment. Right. And in the movie, you've got these, in the movie, you've got these two sailors that uh, decide to jump off the ship while it's in its little vortex. And they end up in the 80s, which at that time was present day, right? And, like, one of the sailors eventually gets, like, he can't, like, he's he's unstable, so he ends up, like, teleporting back to the, to the 40s. And then the other sailor has to get on the ship, and he, like, fixes the problem. And, because you have, like, this hole in space-time that he has to fix from one end to the other. Um, one of my favorite movies growing up. HBO used to show it all the time. I used to watch it all the time because it's kind of a cool little time travel movie. And it's just a neat movie, you know, for that time period. Um, <clears throat> yeah, October 28th, 1943 is given as the date. Now we kind of turn to the book of the knowledge, to the book of knowledge, which is Wikipedia. Wikipedia. I yes. Uh, which is always so good for, for knowledge, right? So the origins of the story, how this first came about was this guy named Morris K. Jessup, who was an author of a book called The Case for the UFO. And he also talked about in that book about the exotic means of propulsion that they used. Well, he gets these letters from this guy named Carlos Miguel Allende, also identifying himself as Carl M. Allen and another correspondent who claimed to have witnessed a secret World War II experiment at the U.S. Navy at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in Philadelphia. In this experiment, Allende claimed the destroyer escort USS Eldridge was rendered invisible, teleported to New York, teleported to another dimension where it encountered aliens, and teleported through time, resulting in the death of several sailors, some of whom were fused with the ship's hull. Jessup dismissed Allende as a crackpot, but the plot thickens. In early 1957, Jessup was contacted by the Office of Naval Research, ONR, in Washington, D.C., who had received a parcel containing a paperback copy of the case for the UFO in a manila envelope marked Happy Easter. 
The book had been extensively annotated and its margins written with three different shades of pink ink, appearing to detail a correspondence among three individuals, only one of which is given a name, Jimmy, with an E. The O&R labeled the other two Mr. A and Mr. B. The annotators refer to each other as gypsies and discuss two type of different types of people living in outer space. Their texts contain non-standard use of capitalization and punctuation and detailed a lengthy discussion of the merits of various elements of Jessup's assumptions in the book. There were oblique references to the Philadelphia experiment. One example is that Mr. B reassures his fellow annotators who have highlighted a certain theory which Jessup advanced. Based on the handwriting style and subject matter, Jessup concluded a large part of the writing was Allende's, and others have the same conclusion that the three annotations are with the same person using the three using three pens. So in other words, the guy that had contacted him. Jessup tried to publish more books on the subject of UFOs, but was unsuccessful. Losing his publisher and a downturn in his personal life led him to commit suicide in Florida on 30th April 1959. And some people think that there was something up with that. So then later on, this book comes out, 1979, which was when the it got really um, popular, this whole concept of the Philadelphia Experiment. Now, that is kind of left alone for a little while after that book and after the movie. Let me recap here real quick. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I've always been curious about this. I've never looked into it at all. It's just always been kind of an interesting story. But there was never any, like, we've had no no other information except for this one guy with kind of an out-there story was where this all started. Right, that's how it started. Um, has there has there ever been any like official documents alluding to this or no? But about Allende, he claimed, and he was later found out to be this guy named Carl Allen, which apparently Carlos Allende made him sound much more sophisticated or something. But he claimed that he knew someone or I think it might've actually been himself that after this experiment and the sailors that had been on the Eldridge said that they had, um, they had been in a fight in a bar fight and they had all of a sudden they started like phasing in and out of existence. Like he said, he saw this happen. That was one of his claims, Right. So that was weird. That was his weird claim. Okay. A lot of people have dismissed Allende as a crackpot, and he probably was. Um, now, there was an actual idea that what was misinterpreted by possibly Allende and some other people was that the Navy was working on this whole thing about degaussing, that this was going to be a way to kind of make ships invisible to radar right okay okay in other words radar wasn't going to detect them and that this guy and had this um he had misinterpreted this as being invisible to the naked eye okay and i'll read this part Uh, The misunderstanding of documented naval experiments. Personnel at the 4th Naval District have suggested 
that the alleged event was a misunderstanding of routine research during World War II at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. An earlier theory was that the foundation for the apocryphal stories arose from degaussing experiments which have the effect of making a ship undetectable or invisible to magnetic minds. Another possible genesis of the stories about levitation, teleportation, and effects on human crew might be attributed to experiments with the generating plant of the destroyer USS Timmerman, whereby a higher frequency generator produced corona discharges, although none of the crews reported suffering effects from the experiment. Observers have argued that it is inappropriate to grant credence to an unusual story promoted by one individual in the absence of corroborating evidence. Robert Gorman wrote in Fate Magazine in 1980 that Carl Carl Allen, who is said to have corresponded with Jessup, was Carl Meredith Allen of New Kensington, Pennsylvania, who had an established history of psychiatric illness and who may have fabricated the primary history of the experiment as a result of his mental illness. Gorman later realized that Allen was a family friend and a creative and imaginary loner, sending bizarre writings and claims. So that's where it all kind of comes from. And other people have looked at this and said that this was this idea of degaussing, of making these ships invisible to radar. Right. So, now, and we're kind of running out of time before we got to call our guests. So, I think we might hit this on the flip side, as a good friend of mine and Luke's used to say. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the Montauk stuff. Because the Philadelphia experiment and Montauk go hand in hand. Right. So. Correct me if I'm wrong. Montauk okay. is, they, uh, they basically, they do research on uh, just like, dis- like diseases. And- that is, uh, that, that, was, that was another, that was Plum Island, which is. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. Right across from Long Island. Yeah. Um. Which is a whole other story. A lot of people think Plum Island is where Lyme disease came from because Lyme disease gets its name from Lyme, Connecticut, and L-Y-M-E, and Plum Island was right across from Lyme, Connecticut. So there's, and they were, and they were, they were experimenting with ticks carrying diseases in, at Plum Island. Okay. Montauk is on the very eastern coast of Long Island. It's way out there. Um, and there was this, remember like a few years ago, there was that thing that washed up on the shore. Yep. And so there were these guys that started talking about how the Montauk, um, there were these experiments that happened over there and what it has to do with the Philadelphia experiment We'll talk about on the other side of the break. Ooh, Let's do it then. I think that'll work. Luke, you got anything you want to say about all this? Uh, who was the guest that was talking about sex rituals going on there and stuff like that? I think Adam Go Rightly, we talked about with him. There yeah. was some weird stuff going on with one of the guys. I, I remember seeing a documentary where they just like concreted it all in. I guess we talk about that later though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that after the guest. Guys, we have uh, Randolph Benson coming on. He is a uh, a film director and film producer. 
and he has a new documentary out called The Searchers, which is not about the Philadelphia experiment, by the way. Although there is a documentary, I do want to get a guy I want to get on about that and Montauk. But uh, he is, uh, The Searchers is about JFK assassination researchers. And we're going to talk about that and uh, talk about his film and some of the things he believes about JFK. And guys, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. My name is Aaron David, and I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. <laughs> All right, guys, we are back on Conspiracy Normal. And uh, as usual, it's your host, Adam Sane and Mr. Rob here. And Luke's still here. He didn't leave. That's good. We thought he might get eaten by the red bugs that are trying to take over the studio. But. <laughs> there's there's way more of them than there are us. I'm yes, starting that, to get nervous. That's true. It's it's getting a little scary. But we do have on the line, uh, we do have Randolph Benson, uh, otherwise known as Randy. And as I said before, he is the director of a film called The Searchers, which is about... The JFK assassination, but also people that have studied the JFK assassination. And uh, Randy, I wanted to uh, welcome you to Conspiracy Normal. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it was uh, Jeff Horster that uh, actually probably mangled his name again, but uh, it was it was him that actually told me about you and did the introduction. Uh, I guess that it came up in our conversation that we had with him a few shows back. And, uh, you know, you sent me the film to watch and I, I really enjoyed it. Of course, it's a, it's a subject that's always fascinated me, you know, the JFK assassination. Uh, I know so much about it that sometimes I almost get tired of it. <laughs> I'm sure that you, yeah. I'm sure that you're in the same boat there in some ways, but I kind of want to talk about what made you to start off the, what made you interested in making this film and then just what made you interested in making a film about researchers in particular? Well, um, like so many people in in this area of study, I'm I'm a I love history. Just plain and simple. I just uh consider myself a history buff and growing up whenever I had the chance, I always read nonfiction. And I always read just devoured as much history as I could and um, however, for me, um, my fascination with the case, um, with so, like so many people in our generation, it was, um, Oliver Stone's movie JFK. And what, in, there were a few things I, that I just didn't know. And, um, and it frustrated me to no end that. I didn't know. And, you know, I, I can, 
like so many people, I went to college and I thought I was getting a good education. But as we know, that history is <laughs> written by the power structure. And I didn't know that there, were, that there had been a trial um, in the JFK assassination. I didn't know about the, the Garrison trial. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I... At the time, I didn't even realize that there had been a House Select Committee investigation that determined there was a conspiracy um, in not just the Kennedy assassination, but in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, it just frustrated me that I was frustrated with myself that I didn't know. And basically, I was pissed off. Hmm. And... And and then at the end of the uh, at the end of the movie JFK, of course, there's that that one title slide, which is the key to my film, and I think we'll get into this in, in a little bit, where Oliver Stone included the title slide that said all of the documents pertaining to the JFK assassination are locked locked away until the year 2029. And this was in 1992, remember? Right, right. And uh, and I and every apparently everyone else in the country just got really pissed off about that. And we wrote our members of Congress. And it was the uh, people in my film that ended up um, getting helping to get the JFK Records Act passed. But I'm I'm kind of a uh, babbling but what what made me after after the movie jfk i started uh researching more reading as my many books as i could the first book i read was um mark lane's rush to judgment mm-hmm. and then um sylvia mars accessories after the fact and then weisberg and everyone else and watching all the films of bob groden and the question, for me, the question kept coming was, uh, who are these people? And how are they making a living doing this research? And, and why aren't people who, you, who one would think would do this kind of research, where are they? Where's mainstream historians and where the, where's the media? And that led me to... Um, kind of start researching the researchers, and that lasted quite a while. And it was always on the back burner all through um, college, all through film school. And then um, in 2001, I made my first trip to Dallas um, to the November in Dallas JFK Lancer Conference, and. Then I went across the way and met the folks at at COPA, John Judge and Bill Kelly and T. Carter and everyone else. And then in the summer of 2002, I shot the first frame of the film on June 10th at um, John Judge's at COPA's American University commemoration. Wow. So it's been 15 years that it's this thing's oh, yeah. been in the making. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and uh, 
it's <laughs> I'm really glad it's done and I'm really glad the community can see it. And most of all, I'm glad that my colleagues and people who aren't familiar with the case can can see it because I think it has the opportunity of really giving people a different perspective on on the people who question difficult subjects in our in our society, you know, but also learning about the key events of the second half of the 20th century. So what, in your opinion, would be kind of like the basic story of some of these people? Like, how would you see their story? Like, where do they start with this and where do they end up? Well, um, you know, Mark Lane, it, for most of the first generation researchers, it started, their research started the weekend of the assassination. Because the initial reports were um, Kennedy was was what the what the Dallas doctors reported in the New York Times that Dr. Malcolm Perry was quoted in the Times as saying that Kennedy was hit in the front in the throat. Right. And then, and so a lot of the focus of the researchers was, well, if they say that this communist sympathizer was behind him and Malcolm Perry said that there was a throat shot from the front. Why is no one pursuing that? And that was, that was what prompted Josiah Thompson to get in the case and Mark Lane. And, um, and then it, as it, I think that was that was kind of the um, the tipping point for I think most most of the first generation researchers. Yeah, it was almost that moment, and uh, same with Penn Jones and all the Dallas people. Now, Penn Jones that was a that was a character that I had never heard of that that person. Apparently, he had been involved since. 1964. I mean, he doubted the official story. Oh, yeah. Well, Penn Jones was um, the publisher of the um, Midlothian newspaper. Midlothian, Texas, like 20 miles from from Dallas and a small town. And uh, he started questioning it This, just like Tink Thompson, just like Mark Lane. The weekend of the assassination and since he was right in the mix he was the one who um started keeping the the tally on the on the jfk deaths the witness deaths um and he also started the moment of silence on the knoll uh, that started in 64 a year later and it ran every year till his death and he asked John Judge to take it over, and John took over the moment of silence till his death. And now, those of us who knew John and worked with COPA and the other organizations, I think it's uh, you know it's a direct having the moment of silence on the knoll on the twenty second of November is kind of the direct line to pen mm-hmm. 
And it's interesting that not too many people in the research community knew a lot about Penn Jones. But he was he was probably the first probably the first researcher. You know, it was him, Lane, um, Ray Marcus, Shirley Martin, just a handful of people. Let's talk about Mark Lane, because here's a guy that, I mean, you know, he was a lawyer. I think he was a pretty, you know, I don't know if he was a high profile, but he had a good, you know, career ahead of him. And he always maintained, you know, that the CIA did it. I mean, in fact, that was like kind of like his pet theory. But like, how does he get involved with the assassination research? And I mean, where does where does he take it? And what would you feel like that he has a really huge role in furthering it along? Yes, he did, and for a number of reasons, um, he was a mainstream. Um, lawyer and a mainstream academic in New York City. He um, he had served a term in the North Carolina legislature. I mean, in the <laughs> in the New York legislature. We could have used him here, actually. <laughs> actually, um, I think he actually ended up here in Tennessee, didn't he? Didn't he end up later on in life in Memphis? I think. No, in um in Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but in the in this area of the world. It was pretty interesting that he settled here. Um, so he had, he kind of had um, and and he was a very successful lawyer in New York State and practiced right right in Manhattan, um, high profile cases, and he took on a lot of pro bono cases in um, in Harlem and. Um, um, lower economic um, communities. So he was really respected in that in that world. And he wrote a lawyer's brief after Oswald was assassinated. Mm-hmm. He wrote a lawyer's brief for the defense of Lee Harvey Oswald to the Warren Commission. And just because he no one asked asked him to do it, but he had done a lot of um, uh, civil liberties work and just thought it was wrong that this guy was being convicted without any representation um, posthumously. So he wrote uh, what's called the lawyer's brief, and it got picked up in the Times, and, uh, and then it, it was a shockwave. And, uh, was this before or after the Warren Commission was published? It was before. Okay. And that's why, and after he, after he wrote that brief, um, um, Marguerite Oswald, um, Lee Harvey's mom, contacted him to represent Oswald in front of the Warren Commission. And so, you know, Lane, he was leading the charge and not because he thought that there was a vast conspiracy or anything. He did it on at the beginning. He did it on legal terms that everyone should be represented. And the more he learned, the more convinced he was of Oswald's innocence. 
And um, he was an amazing man. He, he truly was. You got to speak to him on several occasions. Yeah, yeah. I spent um, a couple days at his with him at his home in Charlottesville. Um, just kind, funny, smart as could be. Um, and I, I tell you, that's one thing that surprises people who are skeptical of of uh, political research or um, you know people who have been labeled conspiracy theorists. Um, they're surprised when I tell them that every researcher that I've hung out with, they're probably this, some of the smartest people I've ever met, and they're kind and, and giving of their time, almost across the board. Um, John Judge was the same way, Mark Lane. Josiah Thompson. I spent a day with him outside of um, in Marin at his house in Marin County. I would drive up to D.C. all the time to see John. And um, yeah, you also got to talk to Dr. Cyril Wecht as well. I mean, he was or still is. I mean, the guy's still around, still quite active, as far as I know. Um, and he had some interesting viewpoints. I mean, here's a guy that is a no-holds-barred uh, forensic pathologist. And what were some of his revelations about Kennedy and about the assassination? Well, um, Cyril Wecht is, I, I honestly believe he's the most impressive person I've ever met in my life. He... He went to law school and med school at the same time. Wow. Think about that. And and he's he is literally the most respected forensic pathologist in the world. And his knowledge of the case and and his excellence as a as a physician and as a lawyer is just un, unparalleled. Um but he was the first the first non-government forensic pathologist allowed to see all the medical evidence in the Kennedy assassination hmm. and and he um he's said it in in my interviews but he said it many other times that it on first look it was obvious that um he was hit by in multiple location um, from multiple locations, um, and and that the autopsy they performed at Bethesda was was a farce, and uh, and then he's he got to speak. He was one of the the first. He was the first non-government forensic pathologists to speak with the all the doctors in Parkland and they were all unanimous that the headshot came from the front and the throat the shot in the throat came from the front as well hmm. something to say here about what you're talking about like Parkland is the hospital in Dallas 
they were taken, the body was first taken there, obviously, right after the assassination, and then just kind of stolen out from under them by the Secret Service and flown back to Washington, D.C. So you, so is it correct that you have these discrepancies between what the doctors at Bethesda, uh, the Naval Yard at Bethesda, those doctors, and between what the, the doctors at Parkland said? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, you know, I'll let, I'll let the medical experts out there, Gary Aguilar's in my movie, Cyril, um, really comment specifically, but in, in a nutshell, the Boswell and Humes, the, uh, the, uh, doctors chosen to perform the autopsy of the president at, at the Naval Medical Hospital in Bethesda. They had never performed an autopsy of a gunshot wound. Hmm. And as Cyril Wecht has stated many times, and he, he says so in my film, he was, um, he was a very respected forensic pathologist, but he was just getting, he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a considered one of the one of the top at the time of the assassination. There were others, and his mentor was the top forensic pathologist in the world at the time. And at the time of the assassination, um, this man uh, said that he knew that he would be called to perform the the autopsy i mean he not out of arrogance he just knew that right they're going to call the top person it's the president of the united states that just got killed yeah yeah it makes and, sense yeah and so he he started packing his bags and he and he called a couple of his colleagues and told them to pack a bag that they'll be going to dc to perform the autopsy and be ready to be gone for a number of days and the call never came. He never received the call. Hmm. And to those people, they immediately knew something was was fishy. You know, they couldn't put their finger on it, but it was an indication that that the government was not going the extra mile to cover all of its bases. Uh, and at, at what point in there did his brain disappear? Because that was a bizarre fact that I had never heard before. Yeah, um, I'm not quite sure at what point it was. Um, I'm sure uh, some of your listeners will will comment um, to correct me, but if I'm not mistaken, it was it was between the the time of the autopsy. And before the garrison investigation, because that in the New Orleans trial in the late sixties, um, it it had been logged that it went to the um, National Archives, and when the garrison investigation got got cranked up, in I think it was sixty seven. Yeah, 60, 60, right. yeah, 66 or 67. They, um, 
they went to the archives to look at all the evidence and the brain was missing. It was just gone. And Cyril Weck talks about that in my film. And he says, the only reason to lose the brain is because by looking at the brain, you'll know exactly where the, where the shots came from. And he even told me how it works, which is really interesting. They freeze the brain and then, and then make slices, like one um, sixteenth of an inch slices of the brain. And by doing that, they can just you can just see the track of the bullet wound. Hmm. So this would have been pretty damning evidence, or it would have corrected the evidence. You know, it would have been irrefutable. Yeah. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, another person you talk to is Robert Grodin, who is someone that I think I'd love to get on the show. I mean, the guy's been doing this for a long time, almost as long as, as Mark Lane had been doing it. Um, you know, let's talk about him, because he has he was one of the the first people that at least I think on the Geraldo show, uh, that, that he actually was there to help first show the Zapruder film to the American public. Yeah. Um, he, to know Bob Groden is to like Bob Groden. He's just the nicest, kindest guy and his wealth of knowledge. Um, Plus, as a as a filmmaker, it was great hanging out with him because he's he's a film geek too, and so he was really ang- well. I don't, he wasn't angry with me, but <laughs> it was like you just had to name your film The Searchers. You know, John Ford's movie with John Wayne is a classic film um, in the canon of film history. It's one of the most important films ever made. And of course, my film is called The Searchers, but it's the right, you know, I just had to convince Bob that this is the right title for my film. Oh yeah, it's definitely the right title for yeah. it, for sure, for <laughs> but, sure. But it's kind of a, a funny thing he would just keep giving me grief about. But um, yeah, Bob was, he was instrumental in so many in so many of the key pivot points of the research of the assassination. Um, like you said, it was the American people had never seen the, um, the Zapruder film. It had been locked away by time life. And Bob Groden worked at a, at a photo developing lab that got a, that um, where the FBI sent the original Zapruder negative to get copies made. And Bob Groden's boss kept a copy. And not long after that, um, he entrusted Bob with it to conduct his own research. Um, I believe Bob felt that his boss knew that, that this had to be seen um, by the public, but that he didn't have the, the skill and the wherewithal to really do the hardcore research on the film and then present it to the public. 
And so he left it to Bob to do. And on, I believe it was in March of 1975, he went on Good Night America, the Gerardo Rivera show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and as he states in the film, this is when Geraldo was, um, had some, had true guts. And he, he had just, Geraldo told ABC that he was going to show it. And ABC said, no, we're going to get sued. And so Geraldo signed a waiver to ABC saying that he will take personal responsibility for any of the legal bills or anything that happens to ABC as a result of showing it. So Geraldo holds a special place in the, in the research um, community as well, oddly enough. Um, and that was the first time that, that the uh, American public had ever seen the Zapruder film. And they were shocked. And that helped the outrage over that helped form the um, House Select Committee on Assassinations. Right. Because this was post Watergate and a lot of stuff was starting to come out. Yeah. Uh, And and, we were talking about this earlier about the church committee and some of the other committees that were set up by the Congress to investigate a lot of dirty, dirty tricks. How many years later was this? This is like, it was a good amount of time. Uh, 75. 75. And I think the House committee was formed in 76 and it convened. And it wrapped up in 78. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It was the revelations of the church committee just blew people's minds. And um, and then after they saw the Z film, they, it couldn't be stopped. Yeah. It's amazing to me that no one saw that. And it took 12 years for people to see it. Now, now, as it's described in JFK, you know, it's depicted in the Garrison trial in that movie that they watched the Zapruder film. Is that true that you know of? In that they, that the Zapruder film was shown in the Garrison trial? Yeah, shown at the trial, yeah. I I believe so. Okay, okay. I didn't know whether that was just a device that Oliver Stone had had used in that in order to show it. Um. But yeah, so then besides anybody in the Garrison trial, no one in the in the public at large had seen it. Uh, that to me is uh, that just blows my mind. Yeah. It honestly does. I mean, how can you say that there's nothing up with the Kennedy assassination when it takes 12 years for people to, to just see some footage of it happening? Yeah, and um and it was misrepresented early on. So I think it was not just the public seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the first time I saw it, I was horrified. And right. it was crystal clear to me, like so many other people, that the shot did not come from behind. Yep. Um, the headshot. But um, there were other things too. So. In when Time Magazine published its frames from the Zapruder film, they they um, switched 
some frame some frames so that it the um i think they switched frames um 312 and 313 so that it made it appear as if the head went forward after the headshot hmm. and they you know after the fact when they were called on it years later, they said it was a printing malfunction, but it wasn't because <laughs> they, they did that to, because it fit the narrative that Henry Luce and, um, all the other, um, Bill Paley and all the other media elites who were founders of the CIA wanted, wanted to meet. And that was at the head. The shot came from the back. But also, it's this sequence is in my film about um, Dan Rather first reporting on the um, Zapruder film. He had it was the Sunday after the assassination, just two days later, and he had bid on the film for CBS um, to purchase it. And they lost to Time Life. But after seeing the film, he ran across Dallas back to the back to his studio at WFAA and got live on air and described what he saw. And he described it as the headshot forced Kennedy's head violently forward. Right. And um, and Bob Groden specifically talks about that and how no matter where you think the shots came from, the head did not move violently forward. It moved violently to the rear. Okay. And yeah, go ahead. You said that this was two days after the assassination that Dan Rather's given this description. Correct. Now, the interesting thing is, is that you have the, of course, the Warren Commission, the magic bullet theory. So were they formulating this cover story super early and then they just made the Warren Commission match to that? Like, what do you think happened there? Because it's awfully coincidental that, you know, he says that the that the head went forward instead of back and to the left as it's said in the JFK movie. But, you know, so what do you think is going on with that? Are they trying to make things match with the Warren, Con- Warren Commission? Well, I think the... Um, from day one, um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, on the day of the assassination, sent sent a... Um, and it, this is a document that was released in the in the '90s through the JFK Records Act. Um, Hoover sent a letter to Bobby Kennedy saying that we have the assassin. He didn't. He was working alone, and that there was no conspiracy. Yeah. So from day one, they had. I mean, the main investigative body in the country is the FBI. And on day one, he committed to a lone assassin. Now, um, 
whether he whether J. Edgar Hoover was ordered to or whether he was involved in the plot, um, there's a lot of research out there to support um, both. And I'll leave I'll leave that discussion to the um, to the researchers. However, the narrative started the day of the assassination, and the government's version of that narrative never changed. All the way up until today, you know, the official narrative is that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, the but and let's talk about the well, I'm gonna talk a little, a little bit more about Robert Gordon because um I'm sure you've seen The Men Who Killed Kennedy, the documentary. Oh yeah. Uh one of the ones that always intrigued me on that documentary, I think it's Robert Gordon, I'm pretty sure that it is, was the whole um Corsican connection. Which is something yeah. you don't talk about in in it, it, something you don't talk about in the movie. But uh, I just thought you know it'd be interesting to kind of explore that because that was that Grodin. No, okay. Um, I forget the name of that researcher. He he was he was involved a lot in the seventies and eighties, and then he I think he just he went on to other work. Um, but you know that's but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. It's yeah. um um, and I think. Um, my, my film deals a lot with the fruits of the labor of the researchers. And that's in, you know, some of their, the biggest contributions is through the release of documents. Yeah. And in the documents, we, we now know that, um, operation mongoose was, a was, a a program where, um, the CIA and the FBI worked with the mafia um, and they had formed that to um, assassinate Kennedy and also to help us, help get us into a war with Cuba, to invade Cuba. And that benefited, that would have benefited everybody. Um, by everybody, I mean the CIA, the intelligence um, operations in the United States, and most, most of all, the mob. Um, and, and so the, so it's hiring assassins, um, through the mob would be consistent with operation mongoose. Um, the mob would most likely when they have hits, I think the standing up, um, standard operating procedure was that when there would be a big a big target, an important target, they would pull assassins from um, their mob ties in Marseille or Greece. And, uh, and so it would be consistent with, with their MO to, to bring, bring in some of those Corsicans. And I think what, um, one of the, one of the most intriguing um, areas of study is of um, the life of um, Sarti, Lucien Sarti. Right. The uh, and that's that's what that 
the researcher and the men who killed Kennedy talked about. Um, so the research community it tends to be split on whether whether uh, Sarti was in fact in Dallas. However, it's an area of study that um, I think I personally think should be revisited because through the documents we now know that the way these operations worked, there could be multiple teams in the same location and they wouldn't know that they were there. That's the way military operations sometimes work. When there needs to be plausible deniability, there could be two, three, four teams in the same locations shooting at the same target, but they wouldn't be aware of each other. Yeah. So it would, it would be consistent with the way operations were handled that they wouldn't, that other teams in the depository or in the Daltex building or on the records building or on the knoll or on the overpass that they wouldn't have known the other teams. Right. Yeah. I found the whole Lucius RT thing really intriguing. And I mean, I think it is debatable now, but I still find it really interesting that like, you know, there was that picture that they pulled up that was, um, supposedly they blew up the, the, uh, the grassy knoll area where they could see like these puffs of smoke in this, in this picture. And they said that there was a guy there and like a firing a shot in a, um, in a policeman's uniform. And yeah. you know what I'm talking about? And then they had the, they had the Lucius RT. They would ask him, you know, like somebody, well, somebody had asked him before, I think he died, but the guy that was in prison, that was telling this researcher all about this said that one of the favorite things that Lucius RT liked to do was dress up like a policeman when he was killing somebody with a rifle. So that was really, that was some really compelling evidence. Uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I just thought to bring that up. I thought that was Grodin, but I guess it, I think the guy looked a lot like him. He I did. Guess. I mean, uh, it's, the bearded researcher crew. The bearded researcher crew. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, is anything you wanted to ask before we go on? Uh, sort of. There's uh, something I didn't pick up on, I guess, when I watched the documentaries. The, so the, the Zapruder film was known from the start, but it didn't surface in the public eye until like 12 years later. Is that how that worked? Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And they had... Um, so everyone had known that um, that a man had shot, had gotten the shot of the assassination. Um, and only certain journalists had viewed this. Only a few journalists had had been a, had been allowed to view it. And then when Time Life won the won the rights to buy it, um, they put it in their vaults. But they did release some images. In Time Life, right. in okay. Life Magazine, but like I said, they they reversed the frame so it appeared as if the head had been thrown violently forward. See, that that was what struck me as odd. Is I thought like it, it had just no one had heard of it, and then all of a sudden, twelve years later, it just came to light. But that makes it even more bizarre that it had been seen by people that reported things that don't even 
aren't even aren't even once in the film, and then twelve years later it comes to light, and they have to kind of backtrack. That makes it even more suspicious. Yeah, yeah. I guess the official reason was probably that it would have been sensitive to the family. That was always the official reason for anything that they did. Yeah, right? that's all what they that's all they would ever say. Yeah, and um, yeah, sensitivity towards Jackie and the kids. Right. That was the right. And if it wasn't that, it was national security. Yeah. So <laughs> some other kind of bogus justification for for doing what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about uh, some of the efforts that these researchers that are in your film uh, did to get some of this stuff released. Some of this, um, some of it released early. Well, um, early on, every single document released was, was, um, because of a FOIA, a freedom of information request, um, all of those requests would be denied and then they'd have to sue. Um, and so some of the documents, the FOIA request would be put in it would be contested. They would sue. Um, they would, uh, the agencies would invariably lose and then they would appeal. So in some cases it would be 10, 10 or 12, 15 years until one document would be released. And, uh, and it wasn't until uh, the movie JFK with that title card at the end that forced the government. It it made people write their congressmen, complain, and that forced the government to examine how to – whether they were going to release the documents. Now, that the one of the important parts – contributions of the research community was that um groups groups like uh um citizens for the truth of the kennedy assassination um jim Eugenio's group and the aarc um walt brown's organization the citizens for an open archive they all and the Assassination Archives and Research Center in D.C., they got together and formed COPA, the Coalition on Political Assassinations. And they had drafted legislation to on how to release the documents of, behind the Kennedy assassination. And so they had that legis- legislation ready to go. And and so when they it was Robert Groden who suggested to Oliver Stone to put that title slide in at the end. So that's another major contribution of Robert Groden to mm-hmm. the case. Right. And because of that, um, they were able to just hand over this already drafted legislation and it got passed. The JFK Records Act of nineteen ninety two. Um, and 
that convened the assassination archives. I mean, the um, um, AARB, the assassination archive review board that they looked at every single document pertaining to the assassination and reclassified it. Um, and they also had to describe if they, if it had to be redacted, why it had to be redacted and when it would be released. Um, and because of the JFK records act, 6.5 million pages of documents have been released. And that's because of researchers, just the normal people that I, I show in my film, just wow. average people. 6.5 million pages. Um, and um, the all of the organizations, all of the institutions could withhold documents. However, uh, 25 years after the conclusion of the review board. But that comes to an end on October 26th of this year. So all documents pertaining to the assassination must be released no matter what on October 26th. And the only way it can be delayed is by presidential order. By so, this year? Of 2017. Okay. Okay. So. This is a huge year. I, there are, I did not know that. Yeah, there are an estimated thirty-five to 50,000 pages that the CIA is withholding that they've refused to release. Um, which, and, you know, if it's very famous that the Secret Service, um, before the review board um, could call all the documents in, um, when the JFK Records Act was passed, all organizations were ordered to maintain their documents and prepare them for release to the board. And the CIA destroyed their documents. They destroyed all of their documents. The Secret Service. And it's noted in the report that the Secret Service destroyed their documents. But the review board, in its first few months of operation... They, they felt it would do, it would hurt the board's efforts if they made a big stink about it, and so they noted it in the report. But that was it. Huh. Yeah. So, so not only did they get these documents released, but they managed to get the the time frame moved up from twenty twenty nine to twenty seventeen. Correct. Okay, so my next question is, with these six and a half million documents, has there any been, been any new revelations? And do you think that there'll be anything new coming out of what's going to, what's everything that gets dumped out this year? Well, yes. Um, there, among the documents, um, Um, among the documents that have been released are um, it's our understanding of 
the stressors within the Kennedy, the Kennedy administration and the Kennedy presidency have become much more clear. For instance, um, we now know that about all the concerted efforts of the um, CIA and other organizations to undermine the Cuban government, um, we now know that that the Joint Chiefs were were actively working against Kennedy during the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we're we're not only have we learned about the Kennedy assassination, but we've also learned about where um, how the power structures surrounding a president work as well. Um, but we. You know, the one of the most famous documents to be released in the six six point five million pages is what's known as the Operation Northwoods document. Right. Um, and I'm I'm sure your listeners are familiar with with that, but it's been called the most despicable, um, corrupt plan ever devised by a government, and that was. The joint, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Lyman Lemitzer, um, designed a plan, gave it to Kennedy, who rejected it, on how to get the United States into a war in Cuba, and that was blowing up civilian aircraft. It was having um, fake terror, fake terrorist, um, fake terrorism attacks on U.S. cities, mm-hmm. um, and a host of other things. It's And all of these actions, it was to create another remember-the-main incident. Right, um, yeah, referring to the Spanish-American War, what got us into that, yeah. Yeah, the blowing up of a ship in, Guant- in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And, you know, Operation Northwoods is most often cited with 9-11 researchers as being kind of like what they would say is like, here's what they thought in the 1960s. So that eventually got translated to 9-11. Did you see any kind of like um, parallels in some of the research? Any of you guys that you talked to were interested in 9-11 as well or anything Anything else that they were kind of interested in? Any more dirty tricks? Yeah. Um, you know, most... Um, many of the researchers had studied um, um, other events. Um, however, um, a lot of the first-generation JFK researchers focus for the most part, strictly on JFK. Um, but people like John Judge, he was, he did um, a massive amount of research on Malcolm X assassination, um, MLK, RFK, um, and, uh, and he helped work with the um, families of the uh, 9-11 victims. Um, Let me see. It was an organization called 
9-11 Citizens Watch, and also a uh, um, an organization called Unanswered Questions. And they were working with the families of victims just to get answers. The release of documents. Um, uh, you know, John Judge just did amazing work in 9-11 speaking with um, uh, NORAD employees mm. who who were confused on that there were drills, there were exercises going on at the same time as as these real attacks, and they were confused. Right. They would, you know, that that famous that famous line. I'm I'm sure a lot of your your listeners know as well. The the NORAD uh, emergency um, emergency worker saying, "Is this exercise a real or real world?" Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, because it was the same plan. It was the exercise was the same, so they were confused, and and that par- with John that paralleled work he did in the JFK assassination because he John went directly to um, bomber bomber pilots back in '63 who had reported that the um, the uh, code books for the nuclear bombs had been removed from all the long range bombers on the day of the assassination. Hmm. And, uh, and he spoke with these, with these pilots and it was very similar to what happened on nine 11, um, stand down orders. And, uh, I actually have a pretty interesting story from my own life that parallels parallels that um my dad was a fighter pilot um in the cold war he was in korea and then the cold war and he trained pilots for vietnam um and he was stationed in germany during the 60s most of the 60s in fact i was born in germany oh really okay yeah um, and he was in a fighter interceptor squadron, so it was his job to fly up and down the east-west German border for most of the Cold War. Um, it was a dance they did every day. They would, there would be um, an American fighter shadowing a Soviet MiG, and they would fly north, turn around, fly south, turn around, fly north, and then they would peel off in the next the next group would come up and do it. And they did it. <laughs> there were fighters in the air always for 10 or 12 years. Um, and my dad was, since that was really the front line of the Cold War. So whenever anything happened globally, um, he was scrambled. The planes were were always running, always ready to just be jumped in and and flown. Um, he could be in the air in 15 minutes, 15 minute alert for that whole time. And so when De Gaulle, when the assassination attempt on De Gaulle, um, happened, my dad was scrambled and his group, um, 
during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs, any global event that happened. My dad would say, if a Russian farted, we'd be in the air. <laughs> <laughs> but then that's how tense it was, you know. It was it was that tense, yeah. But he found out that Kennedy was assassinated, um, having dinner at the officers' club. Um, he was, they weren't scrambled. They weren't notified. Some guy just came in and said, Hey, did you hear? And that's how he found out that the president was assassinated. And for my dad, he was, you know, he was a dedicated military man, career military. And at that moment, he knew that something was wrong, that protocol doesn't break down there at that level. That's the front lines. If, if protocol ever breaks down, people die. It just never broke down. But that one time it did. And, uh, and so my dad always, he never really said anything to us. But he knew something was up. And when I started working on this project before my dad died, um, we talked about it a little bit. And he said, much to my surprise, because he was a career military. And, um, but he said, those, those bastards killed Kennedy. Mm. So because he was essentially called to stand down, for all intents and purposes, he was stood down. He knew something else was at foot. At foot. Well, you know that, like the 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 ex character that Donald Sutherland plays in the in the movie JFK, the one that's based off of um, what's what's the Fle- uh, Fletcher Fletcher Pr- Prouty. Prouty? Yeah, he uh, you know it, I guess, and I, I know that that draws from Prouty's work, so. You know the whole idea that 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 um, the cabinet was off on some was out of the country, and there was apparently some army division that or somebody that was in the air for riot control. You know that that type of thing, and that's very similar to nine eleven, where you had people spread out. You know, Bush was in Florida, and you know the Cheney was was there in control in Washington D.C. Oddly enough. And so, yeah, it's like a very similar aspects to the Kennedy assassination as you get to nine eleven, as well. So, yeah, I mean, that is strange. Like, how would they know that Lee Harvey Oswald, if it was just Lee Harvey Oswald, how'd they know that just some crazy guy was going to shoot the president? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, like and- as soon as it happened, there should have been like a high, a high, like military alert, especially at that time period. And especially when they accused, when the accused assassin was in my film, I have the news footage from two hours after after the assassination. Yeah, they went on the air and stated that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, and he's a communist sympathizer who had defected to the Soviet Union, and all this detailed information that to the people at the time, people like my dad. It it pointed to the Soviet Union assassinating our president. Right. So 
it's it's double the fact that they should have been in the air. Uh, that mm-hmm. you know, it's it's really insane. The disgruntled communists that used to live in the Soviet Union, right? Yeah, which I think that's a good point to talk about the role of the media in all this. You know how the media spins the um, the JFK assassination story. Um, how they use the term conspiracy theory. Uh, you talk about in the film. You talk about uh, CBS News and how in bed. And this this came out in the church committee hearings. How in bed they were with the um, with the CIA. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, and it wasn't just CBS, but. If if they gave medals for collusion with the CIA, uh, CBS would be on the top step of the podium. Um, Bill Paley was the was the um, uh, the president of CBS at the time, and he was a founding member of the CIA. He had been in the OSS during World War II the predecessor to the CIA and he was a loyalist and never wavered from supporting the intelligence um, services, especially the CIA. Um, what was and that operation C- mockingbird? Was that what that yeah. was called? Yeah. 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 And I allude to the actual operation in my, in my film, but I don't, um, um, I don't specifically call it as the stated as the operation. Right. I felt, I felt, you know, part of my film, I had a long cut that, that I did have a whole section on operation mockingbird, but I just felt it was, I was getting too far away from the researchers to actually, um, have to explain a whole nother set of government operations to my, to the lay person watching my movie. So, um, but had the media done its job, um, the researchers wouldn't have needed to do their work. You know, that's the role of, right. Of the, our fourth, fourth branch of government. Right. And they didn't do their jobs. So that's why the researchers had, to, why normal people had to step up and, do the research. Um, but Bill Paley and of course, Walter Cronkite and, um, Dan rather. And then at ABC from day one, they lined up and they continued to support, support the official version, support the Warren commission. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah, you, yeah, I mean, just even now, I mean, it's it's 50-plus years now, but I was telling Rob earlier before we got on the show was, you know, um, CNN, they put out this episode of the 60s, their series, the 60s, you know, they do these 60s, mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, and uh, they had this one hour-and-a-half-long documentary about the Kennedy assassination because it came out in 2013, 50 year anniversary. And they were, they talked about all, it was all about the Warren commission. 
it was all just a defense of the war commission of how great it was. And then they talked about Jim Garrison and talked about how, you know, terrible he was and pretty much denigrated him. You know, man, the man had been dead for over 20 years, but they're still kicking him even when he's dead. Uh, and then also, the big thing was no mention of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Absolutely none. Just completely glossed over it. Didn't even talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's been the... That is the MO of the American media in the Kennedy case. Um, with very few exceptions. And when I mean very few, I mean next to none. Yep. Um, but the it's almost more pernicious when you think about that that came out on the 50th anniversary. So as public consciousness is kind of moving back towards the the story of the assassination, they they come out with the same BS over and over. And and it happened um, when the JFK Records Act was passed in the early 90s, that they that all this new attention was on the JFK assassination. But what happened? Um, Case Closed by Gerald Posner came out mm-hmm. and got all the media attention and was he was on every morning show and he was on all the Sunday shows and cover of time Newsweek. Yet this was before any of the documents were released. So this, the story in the press was that the documents were re, are released, but the case is closed when it was exactly the opposite. Right. And try to head it off at the pass. And that's exactly what's happening right now with this discovery channel 13 part um, series that's that's come out um, this is the year oh. that more documents are being released and what's happening the same as what happened in the early 90s with with the ARB what so, what's the 13 part discovery channel series I haven't heard about this oh gosh what's it well also you know this year is the centennial of JFK's birth. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's another. As consciousness comes, immediately these these uh, these documentaries or books come out. Yeah, it's a. Uh, oh, it's called JFK Declassified. It's. I'm sorry. It's History Channel, not dis- not Discovery. Uh, same thing. Tra- yeah. <laughs> It's well, History Channel is a little worse. Are they going to say that he, it was actually aliens that did it? It was ancient aliens. It's it's <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing that they do that, and and you know that's that was something that in my screening the other night. Um, one of the is um, this person was a is a history professor at a major university in the triangle here in North Carolina. And, um, she said, I always thought that those were the tinfoil hat 
alien agenda people. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. and this is, and this is someone who is a PhD. I mean, from a major university and they're really smart and really considerate and, and one would think intellectually curious, you know, but in this one topic, it's like all the rules of their trade go out the window. Um, John judge referred to mainstream historians and as bourgeois intellectuals. And I think in, in terms of the Kennedy assassination, they've proved them, proven themselves to be so. See, I can't fathom as someone that, I mean, I'm big into history myself, and I can't fathom why any historian could not look at this assassination and say, yeah, that makes sense because that's happened all throughout history. It's the same pattern over and over again. I just don't get why... You know, it's it shouldn't just be it shouldn't just be a given that you know, hey, maybe someone in the powers that be would kill would kill a president of the United States. I mean, is it that impossible to think that we could do that? That's always what's bothered me about the people that deny the that there could have been a conspiracy. Yeah, it's it's really strange, and it. I too have been perplexed by that very thing. It's what it's interesting to me that that um, in America, everyone admits that conspiracies exist in every aspect of our lives, in business, in sports, in religion, in virtually every human interaction. Except for power politics, mm-hmm. I think that's that, because it's so much scarier. I think you're right. It's it's yeah. so much more comfortable to believe that that they're out there for us, that they're fighting for us, that they want what's best for us, and and anything to the contrary is just terrifying. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you go through this concept, and I think this is beautifully said. You know, first of all, the whole conspiracy theory, that word, that moniker was given as like a as like a derogatory term for people researching JFK assassination. And by the you know that's been proven I think that the CIA actually came up with that. And then second of all is this whole concept of they will constantly say, well these people would rather believe in this overarching conspiracy because uh it's more comfortable to them than to believe that it's just one guy with a gun that killed this great president. And like, but you in your film, you show what your researchers have to say about that. Yeah, and um, John Judge has a great a great line when um, he says, "Well, I don't fluff my pillow at night with the thought that this was no lone nut. This was a conspiracy of vast proportions that conspired to." kill my president i can sleep well now yeah Um, yeah you know that's a great great line by john um but uh walt brown um you know he's he has created an amazing 
um, chronology, a master chronology of the JFK assassination. Um, but he has a great line about that in my film where he, he basically um, poses this scenario that um, um, a child of his is, is murdered, is found murdered, and the police come and tell him, and he is broken up, but finally he can ask what happened. And the cops say, well, either it was an, an insane person um, got away from an asylum and and just killed her. And it was just one of those things. Someone escaped. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it happened. It was either that or it was a group of hell's angels that kidnapped her and brutalized her and then murdered her. Mm-hmm. Well, as a father, you pray it's the former. You pray it's the insane person, that it just happened. But it's you pray that it's not the systemic. It's not an institution, a group, right? Carrying out that act. And in this scenario, Oswald is the is the um, accident. And the Hell's Angels is conspiracy. Yeah, I thought that was beautifully put in the film. Absolutely beautifully put. Randy, in the time we got left, uh, I'd just like to ask you, man, um, why do you think Kennedy was killed? What do you think the reason was? Because you always hear all these different things like Cuba, Vietnam. What do you think the reason was that he was killed? Um, I think it was a nut. It was, I think. There were a lot of reasons. Um, Jim Douglas in his book, JFK and the Unspeakable, I'm sure you've read it. It's an amazing breakdown of just what Kennedy was was doing to, um, to change the relationship between the United States and the world and the policies that he was enacting. But in a nutshell, he had he had formed a back channel communication with Khrushchev and they had planned on working together. Um, and he was going to call off. He had some of the documents that have been released are his internal notes stating that he was going to give up the space race so that we could go to the moon with the Soviets. Um, they were, going to work together on uh, bilateral arms treaties. Um, They were going to work together to quell strife in the third world, which was very threatening to colonial powers. Um, And he, and one of the main, main things he was going to do is, um, as he stated, scatter the CIA into the wind, mm-hmm. shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it into the wind. And, um, um, and those are just a few of the, of the things. One, um, if I can recommend to, to your listeners, if you have a chance, um, you can find them online. Now the letters, the Kennedy Khrushchev letters, they are these these are the um the letters that they pass to each other 
through intermediaries behind the scenes, and they're now released by the uh, Kennedy Library, and they are fascinating. And one can't read those without without thinking that Kennedy knew his time was limited. I think he knew he was going to be assassinated. And uh, those letters are absolutely amazing and show just what an amazing president and uh, man Kennedy was. And it's most likely what got him killed in the end. Yeah. You do mention the American University speech, uh, which is, you know, talk about the, you know, we're all human. We all live on the same planet. It was very dangerous to people that wanted to make money off of Bell helicopters. Yeah. Um, well, also, I, I don't know if you <laughs> mentioned it in there, but the um, the the Federal Reserve central banking system that's that's one that always fascinates me because there was four presidents that were outspoken about it. Uh, the first being Andrew Jackson, who vetoed its renewal, and the second being Lincoln, who was assassinated. Then you had Garfield, who was assassinated. Then you had Kennedy, who was assassinated. Yeah. Well, you know. Uh, I think there is a lot to that. And I think it's one of the many, many things that it was one of the nails in his coffin. Absolutely. Um, and I think all the, the documents that are being released reveal that the um, intelligence community, they worked or in many cases were the very same people that ran the major corporations. Right. So um, when people say that it had to be a vast conspiracy, it was actually a very small conspiracy. Um, just a handful of people. But when, when one person controls regiments, that's a lot of power. Um, um, it's also interesting that um, Khrushchev was kicked out of power um, not even a year after Kennedy's assassination. Yeah. So that's yeah. interesting too, on the other side of the uh, other side of the Iron Curtain. You know, this is um, that's hinted on in a in a great film, uh, Thirteen Days. Um, I'm sure most of y'all have seen it, right. but it's a mm-hmm. it's a great film to revisit just as a as a primer in the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis, because Khrushchev was under the same threats from his military hardliners. Um, yet Kennedy and Khrushchev, in the midst of all of that, they chose to work together, and and it spelled doom to both of their lives and political careers. Yep. I mean, Khrushchev was essentially exiled, correct? Yeah, he really was. Yeah, he was, I mean, he just, I think he just died in kind of obscurity. I think he ended up running like a tractor farm or some, a tractor factory or something like that. Wow. <laughs> think about that. It's crazy. Right, exactly. Yeah. And like the hardliners really did take over. But then, weirdly enough, you have this detente that where they actually start working together, and it's just—it's so strange, all of it, um, yeah—and just so confusing. 
Randy, where can you, where can people see the film? Uh, I know that you've done some screenings. And so tell us about when, you know, it's going to get released and where people could see it. Well, um, I had the, the premiere at the Tiburon International Film Festival um, outside of San Francisco. And the film won the Orson Welles Award, um, oh, which nice. I was I was thrilled with because it being a film nerd, I just to be to have that name on a piece of paper in my office. I just want to kind of retire, you know, <laughs> I can't get much better than that. Um, and then it showed at it had the world. I had a special showing at the uh, Texas Theater in November um, for the research community, um, and that was before its its release um, to the Tiburon Film Festival. And it showed at the International Free Thought Film Festival in Orlando a couple weeks ago, and then I had this local screening here in the Triangle in Chapel Hill. But the next screening will be um, in Eugene, Oregon, at the um, at Tsunami Books, and I will. If people go to my website, um, thesearchersfilm.com, I have a. Uh, I keep. I keep people up to date about where it's screening. But um, um, but also I have a store, and right now I'm selling. I made a box set of um, uh, over 37 hours of the raw, uncut interviews with all the researchers. Oh, okay, wow! And it's a it's a really special thing to see them talking about their lives and the pressures that they faced and. Um, and, uh, what they had to do to, to do their work, but I'll also be making, um, uh, the DVDs of just the film available, um, within the next few weeks. And I've, because of the showings and the award I've, I'm in, I'm working with a distributor and hopefully in the next, in the next few weeks, it'll be available on Netflix. Okay, wow. Yeah, excellent. So that's, that's Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, whether it was going to be available on Netflix or Amazon or Prime or something like that. Yeah, so I will I'll let you know as soon as it's on uh, online streaming. Sure. Um, but people can go to the, my site and visit the store, and in a couple of days, I'll have the, um, the DVD up for purchase, and... Um, please visit this site because I have more screenings lined up, um, that I've, once the details are, are firmed up, I'll, I'll post about it, but, uh, Eugene, Oregon, DC, um, New York, Boston, Denver, Columbus. So I have a lot of dates, um, lined up to actually take it on the road and, well, let us know if you come to Nashville. Well, let's make that happen. Okay. I love your town. It's a wonderful yeah. place. Okay. It's food for thought. Yeah. All right. Well, 
Uh, Randy, thank you so much for being on, man. It was a real privilege having you. Uh, Rob, was there anything that you wanted to say or? Um, yeah, just, I, I loved the approach of the documentary The um, you know, I, I, we watch a lot of these here and a lot of them are just like a layout of information. The, the approach of like chronology or chronologizing, I don't even know the word, uh, the, the release of the information and the media's reaction to it. That was just really cool. Cause it, it, it was a lot of stuff that I had no idea, like how this stuff had come out and the order and the sequence that came out and the vast expanses of time between different bits of information and. So it's just yeah. great job, man. Well, cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was yeah. a long, long time in long time making and 15 years. <laughs> yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. I can tell you it's a long time and you know, it gets derailed by, by life, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I tried to finish it before I started having kids and then <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> and then, that, you know, everything gets pushed, pushed to the back when you have kids. So. All right, Randy. Well, we're going to close this section out. Uh, stay on the line for us, and uh, guys, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. No, I really miss hearing Rob Arino. I'm not going to lie. Do you? Yeah. Bring you back to your days and leisure hour? It does. Brings me back to the Jeff's creepy-ass basement. Back to the days when he was the dude. The dude. That's right. Whatever happened to the leisure hour? It just kind of it, it petered out. I don't know. Yeah. We were having some difficulties with guests and with scheduling and, you know, it, it just wasn't growing. We all had different ideas, and I think it just kind of fell apart. Did you release a show not too long ago? We did. We released our final episode not too long, a couple weeks ago. Oh, the final episode? Yep. Episode 50. It better be hilarious. Gotcha. It was pretty good. I think you did 50 episodes. Yeah. That's pretty good. It's not bad. But you still got Conspiranormal. Still got you guys. Yeah, man. Oh. <laughs> We'd love it if Jeff would come back and sit in with us at some point. I know. But he's he's off being crotchety old Jeff. <laughs> uh, what'd you think about that man? That interview. And what'd you think about the movie too? Oh, I love the movie. Um, I mean, it really was presented in a cool way. Where it's just the the like I said the um, just kind of details the chronology of the um, the information as it was released and the media's reaction and response to it and sort of their their media's repression of it. Which you know, like a lot of the stuff we talk about, there's no. I mean, obviously, we're talking about it because we, we don't know what happened. But there's um, there's so much circumstantial evidence and so much bizarre stuff that it's like it's hard to to believe that there's not way more to the story than what we've been fed. You know, and, right? And the, exactly. I think the documentary did a great job of expressing that without trying to necessarily give all the details um, and information behind the assassination itself, which was is, is an interesting take on it. It was really cool. Right. Yeah. No doubt. I it's uh it, it's such a rabbit hole the JFK thing. I think whatever you have um whatever you believe about it is what you're going to believe about it. 
you know, but I mean, the the weight of evidence points to there being some kind of conspiracy. Yeah, there's definitely mind. more been through to that the before. story. Yeah. Right. What do you think, Luke? Um, I think the most interesting uh, thing that I heard was uh, about all those documents being declassified this year. It would be cool to, I mean, I'm sure you're going to go look at them when they're first available. <clears throat> well, this is the deadline. This year is the, the last year they, they have to release the information that yeah. they haven't already. Who knows if, I mean, maybe they won't. Well, isn't it interesting what he said about 1992 and then releasing the documents, 92 or 93, and he said that Gerald Posner put out the case closed book, and every time there's some kind of release, all of a sudden the media goes into full kind of blooded overdrive. So, like, he's saying, like, you know, yeah, it's the 100th year anniversary of JFK's birth, but we're going to have all these documents released this year, 2017, and they're doing these documentaries on the history channel that are going to be kind of like debunking or quote unquote debunking conspiracy theories and all that. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm going to have to watch that because I've never been on the lookout for that sort of thing surrounding this until, until sort of recently. Right. Exactly. I didn't know the media's involvement in it even until, until just now, really, to be honest, right. like I didn't know, um, I didn't know Dan rather, was tied into to that back then. I didn't oh, know yeah. That. It pretty much, I think, made him... I didn't know that Geraldo went out on a limb to try to expose mm-hmm. and provide new material, which makes me respect him a lot more. Yep. I also um, learned that you could film a pretty decent quality movie for just $800. Which I cannot wait to see what you do. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Who cannot wait to see Luke's film? He's going to make a movie, guys. It's It's been in the works. Now... Montauk? Montauk. 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 Let's do this. This is interesting stuff. I hope we won't go too long with this, so we'll make it like a three-hour show. But uh, here's how Montauk kind of comes about. Now, as we talked about, Montauk is like this base, this small base that's on the tip of Long Island, the very easternmost tip of Long Island. Right. Um how this came to be according to the book of knowledge wikipedia wikipedia stories about the montauk project have circulated since the early 1980s according to ufo researcher jacques valet the montauk experiment stories seem to have originated with the account of preston nichols who claimed to have recovered repressed memories of his own involvement American Preston Nichols claims to have degrees in parapsychology, psychology, and electrical engineering. He authored a series of books known as the Montauk Project series, along with Peter Moon, the primary topic of which is alleged activities at Montauk. These center on topics including United States and government military experiments in fields such as time travel, teleportation, mind control, contact with alien life, and staging faked Apollo moon landings, Framed as developments which followed a successful 1943 Philadelphia experiment, these culminate in a hole ripped in space-time in 1983. Now, Preston Nichols was one of the first guys to talk about this. I'm not going to talk too much about him, uh, because like I said, I'd really love to get this guy. The the film is called Montauk Chronicles. Um, There's some interesting things about Montauk. They said that they would kidnap these teenagers and put them in this chair where they would conjure up these weird creatures. Like supposedly there was this weird Bigfoot-like creature that was conjured up. And the original um, title, the working title for for the show Stranger Things, if anyone has seen that, was Montauk. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, 1988, around that time period into the early 90s, this man called Al Bielik comes along. Oh, here we go. Now, Al Bielik claimed to have been a worker in Montauk. He also claimed to have been involved in the Philadelphia experiment. However, he said that he was this totally different person known as Ed Cameron. And he was involved in the Philadelphia experiment. Now, as Ed Cameron, who he originally was before he was age regressed and sent back in time to be a baby as Al Bielik. Does this sound familiar to you in any way? Does this sound like someone we've spoken to before in the past? It does. I mean, let's see. We've got um, military. We've got uh, yes. time travel. Um, we've got... I, well, let, let's just let's go through the timeline, and then we'll count how old okay. he is, because okay. that's what we did last okay. time. Yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this sounds like Captain K. Yeah. Right? This sounds exactly like his story except for the Philadelphia experiment in Montauk. Captain K said he was age regressed and sent back as Captain K in the 1970s. It's exactly the story that Al Bielik said. Now, as Ed Cameron, he was on the USS Eldridge, okay? And he jumped off the USS Eldridge with his brother, right? And they have all these adventures through time until they eventually end up in 1983 in the at, at Montauk. So apparently Montauk and the USS Eldridge are on opposite ends of the time portal. Got me? Okay. Now, Al Bielik is saying this stuff in the 1990s. He mostly came on Art Bell. I remember hearing interviews with the guy. Okay. Utterly fascinating stuff. The guy could be really convincing. He was just this old man, and he would come on and talk about this. Well... Here's the problem with Al Bielik's supposed testimony from 1988 on into the 90s. The Philadelphia Experiment movie came out in 1983, and, every, and what he says happened is the exact, almost the exact plot of the Philadelphia Experiment movie. Right. How Art Bell or anyone else never called him on this, or anybody ever called him on this, which, I don't know. Which was a totally fiction movie based on... Based on the, the story, the story the book, that we talked about in the intro, right? The yeah. book based on the ramblings of this guy that was interested in the UFO book by Morris K. Jessup. Right. So there's the there's the long the long chain there. All right, uh, I'll read a little bit about from this is from Belick.com. So this is from the horse's mouth. Uh, this is about uh, Ed Cameron, who Al Belick claimed. Was his past he life? Was who lived? At, it's not exactly currently with him. It's not exactly a past life. Well, um, yes, I, I really don't know what to really say. It's. A concurrent past life. Um, okay. While waiting for the battleship to be modified, Ed and Duncan, his brother, were assigned to the USS Pennsylvania. They were scheduled to leave to Pearl Harbor on December fifth, nineteen forty-one, and their orders canceled because it was known that Japanese would bomb Pearl Harbor. Apparently, the brothers were deemed too powerful to put into harm's way. After the tests on the USS Eldridge, Ed married Mary Jane and bore one son, John Cameron. I'm not okay. The, 
I want to get to the part, the, the juicy stuff here. Uh, let's see here. So there's all this stuff about them ending up in Montauk. Don't they go uh, way into the future at some point and work as yes, like janitors they do. or yes, something? Yes, they do. Um, okay. Now he after he get after this he gets involved with Edward Teller, who's the inventor of the hydrogen bomb. Ed Cameron had had access to secret files of Los Alamos and learned that time travel was already accidentally discovered in 1936 near the Bermuda Triangle by a Navy ship. That's just thrown in there. Apparently, the ship disappeared <laughs> and reappeared two months later. His questions about the project were met with response, don't ask. While working on the hydrogen bomb project, Ed and Dr. Teller, that's Edward Teller, strongly disagreed with the viability of weaponizing fusion. Ed believed it to be unpredictable. Eventually, this disagreement got Ed forcibly separated from his family and a one-way ticket to Washington, D.C. in 1947. Despite Ed's pleas with, the, with our government, they told him he could continue working but had to leave his family. Today, Al still doesn't recall why he had to leave his family. His next project was to be an observer of the Mach 1 project at Edwards Air Force Base. He worked closely with Jack Ridley and got to know Chuck Yeager when the project concluded. Ed and Jack decided to go into business with each other. They formed a company in California called JRC Enterprises. Their company worked towards building the first ion propulsion engine. They received funding from the military and ultimately were successful in 1953. When the test was successful, Ed's father, Alexander, got involved and promised to fund the project to move into production. Something went wrong. Apparently, this technology stepped on the toes of some other powerful group. Al thinks it has something to do with the Cristotal Research Group. It was decided to take Ed out. A group of black ops soldiers removed Ed from his premises and put him on a train to the Pentagon. Ed was taken to McLean, Virginia, placed into a portal, and sent to Alpha Centauri 1. After several days' interrogation by aliens... <clears throat> Rob, I, I, see you, I see you smiling over there. This is serious, man. Sorry. No, no, no. Ed, Ed, was, re- Ed was, was returned to the Pentagon. I was thinking Pentagon. about something else. Even though reporting in daily, Ed was never again given another assignment. Continual inquiry on Ed's part finally resulted in a plea to the Joint Chiefs. Their response was, there is nothing we can do. It is out of our hands. Ed was then taken to Montauk on August 12th, 1953, and physically regressed to Al Belik and the year 1927. So he was physically regressed and sent back in time, just like our good friend Captain K was. Now, you mentioned the timeline. Yes. All right. It's got it all mapped out here for your convenience. This is what happens. Are you listening, Luke? Oh, yeah. I want you to get to all, all this, and I want you to miss a, mi- miss a minute. Right. Um, 1916. Birth date for Ed Cameron. Al Belik is the regressed essence of Ed Cameron. He's the regressed essence. Uh, birth date of Al Belik, 1927. Al's first memories are at Christmas when he was one year old and understanding all the conversation. 1943, August 13th, 1943, date of the Philadelphia experiment. Of course, they said in the other article it was September, but okay. When Ed and Duncan Cameron jump off the USS Eldridge, they both land in the year 2137. 1953. Final year of Ed Cameron's linear experience. Ed knew too much and irritated Dr. Edward Teller. A group of three voted Ed off the atomic bomb project and ultimately out of existence as Ed Cameron, but first they sent him to Alpha Centauri 1 to be interrogated by aliens. Of course. 
It is regressed to Al Bielik to the year 1927. 1983. Ed and Duncan Cameron find themselves at Montauk, 1983, after spending six months in 2137. Dr. John Von Neumann greets the two and convinces them to try time travel back to the USS Eldridge in 1943 to destroy the control equipment and shut the experiment down. Now, in the Philadelphia Experiment movie, they send Michael Perret's character back in like some kind of weird suit from the research center in 1983. They send him back to shut it down, to destroy this device, to shut it down. Okay, that's in the movie. Al is recruited to work at Montauk in 1983. He keeps the guise of his regular job as an electronics contractor, but works in an altered state at Montauk. He was a program manager for the Montauk Boys program, participated in the mind control experiments, and actively participated in time travel projects. In 1988, his memories returned and believes he was not used any further at Montauk. 2000. Presently, Al Bielik speaks publicly about his involvement at Montauk and the Philadelphia Experiment. He's been on over 50 radio talk shows and a featured presentator at over 40 conferences. 2137. After Ed and Duncan jumped off the USS Eldridge in 1943, they landed in the year 2137. They both spent six weeks in a hospital bed recovering from radiation burns, suffering, suffered from being in hyperspace. Toward the end of their stay, Ed is moved, by, no, by means unknown, to him to the year 2749. Ed returns from 2751 <laughs> to pick up his brother Duncan, and together they travel back to 1983. Now, 2749, from 2137, Ed Cameron travels alone to 2749 for a period of two years. It is a tour guide and remembers floating cities built with anti-gravity technology and a society run by computers. That's right, tour guide. <laughs> the programmers of the computers are called the Wingmakers. Ed had several meetings with them where they explained their agenda. After two years, Ed goes back to the year 2137. Are you confused yet? No, I, I totally understand that. All that. Okay, so um, <laughs> wait a minute. In the, in the movie, now in the movie, does the character talk to anyone from Alpha Centauri? No. Okay, so it's not the same. I don't know what you're harping about. Okay, well, then, yeah, well, if the Alpha Centaurians aren't involved, then, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. What do you think about that, Luke? Dude, I want to hover bike so bad. Like, if I was ever rich. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. That's nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> I would give Colin Furs all of my money so he would make me a hover bike. How about you go to a time portal and go get you a, a, a hover bike? Find me a time portal and oh, I'm we'll sure make there's that one somewhere around. We got to go to Montauk. I'm sure it's still operational. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, that'd be your yeah. Okay, so what? What there's is? Been dozens of people walk around the supposed site. <laughs> right. What is Montauk? Like, what does go down there? Do we know anything about this uh, place? Okay. Well, it was it was an installation. I believe it was like a wet. They said it was a weather installation. Now. In all seriousness, I do think something happened there. Um, but I think probably what it had to do with was some kind of MK Ultra mind control. And I think that that's slowly something that is coming out. Now, it's a fantastic story that Al Bielik is was saying, obviously. We get a lot of these things so close to that right. scene. Right, exactly. Um 
it makes me wonder whether or not Preston Nichols, Al Belick, some of these other guys that say they were involved with this, whether they are not just lying, whether their mind, they were actually they really part of the that. experiment and they right. were actually induced to believe that this stuff actually happened to them, whether that's through hypnosis or through somebody planting that in their memory to see what happened. Um, that's what I think. And I think Captain K could be another one of these guys. For sure. So that's kind of the conclusion that I that I've come to. It's just a really cool, like, kind of fascinating story, and I love that timeline. It's just, it's just great stuff. I like that they decided to hire someone as a tour guide from like six hundred years in the past. Yeah, well, maybe he knew things that they didn't. Yeah, I suppose. Like, yeah, six hundred years. That's ago, a they, fascinating life. Yeah. That's a fascinating two lives. Yeah, if you think about it. All right. Well, uh, I think that that closes out the show. Uh, we are going to continue next week. We're going to have Jack Brewer on, and we're going to do that interview here in a couple of days. UFOs? Yeah. We're going to talk yeah. about the grays have been framed. Awesome. And this might be a little controversial show. We're going to talk about how they... Um, I've read that title. That's all I know about yeah, it at this point. It's mostly about a skeptical approach to... Uh, UF abduction researchers, guys like Bud Hopkins, um, David Jacobs, um, and also how some of the same stuff that we're talking about, like you know, mind control stuff, is also has been used, and a lot of um, psychological warfare and just psychological testing might have been done on the public, and how that's got a lot to do with what supposed UFO encounters. Nice. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going through that book, and it's it's really, really good. Um, Luke, take us out with some words of wisdom. Oh, with what now? Words of wisdom. wisdom. Um, if you try to bathe in the lake, it doesn't do any good. You'll still stink. <laughs> and don't use aluminum antiperspirant deodorants because you will get cancer and die. Thank you. Thank you. That was that was profound. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, guys. Join us uh, next week as we continue our road to Roswell on Conspiranormal. That's dank.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.